Hey, Outliers, we're back with Joe Percoco of Titan for a quick bonus interview. And in this short episode, Joe shares some of the habits, figures, books, and life lessons that have helped propel him to the top of his field, including why he focuses on candidates' why intercepts instead of the slope of their growth curve when hiring, and what both of those terms mean, how he audits his calendar each week using a green-yellow-red framework to make sure that he's spending at least 90% of his time on his highest priorities, how Titan uses what they call a t-shirt ROI assessment when deciding on priorities and what to work on next, And Joe shares some of his favorite books, including 11 Rings by Phil Jackson and The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. Let's dive in with Joe Percoco. Okay, Joe, welcome back again. I'm super excited to talk about habits, tools, and a bunch of just how you show up as your best self. So thanks again. So first question, I always want to try to connect the dots between what we were talking about in our previous part of your interview and what we're talking about here. And I thought one really interesting angle to explore here was what have you learned and applied in your own life, in your own work from studying some of the world's greatest investors? And that can be everything from the importance of reading, the importance of time to yourself. I'm just curious, what kind of insight have you gleaned that you've applied? Most important one, you get a lot of like inconsistent stuff and it's like, okay, I'm going to piece it together because these two things say the exact opposite. One of the few things that's remarkably consistent is mastering your most important friend, which is the little voice inside of you. And it's just crazy. The number of people I speak to, CEOs running multi-billion dollar companies, people who ran fang companies, and just how much effort they're spending to ensure that the relationship with themselves is just fulfilling, content, calm, focused. And it seems just like consistently a lifelong journey. And so for me, a lot of this stuff I've started to do over the last six to 12 months have been just related to that and just like really watering that relationship. Can you give any examples? I know for some people that's journaling. I know for some people that's like more solitude or meditation. What does that look like for you? I'm so bad at that stuff. <laughs> I like that answer. That's great. I'm not even going to try to pretend maybe other guests do that. Look, I like meditate for 30 minutes at 6.30 in the morning and then I have my avocado toast and coffee and I've already journaled by then because that is so not And me. it's still 6 a.m. And it's still 6 a.m. and clock goes backwards. That is not me. And so I can give a very real sense for like, look, all this stuff is exceptionally important, but it's often quite difficult just given the daily routines of life. And so for me, what I've tried to realize is just how do you foster good habits without having to make necessarily drastic changes. And so one of the most important things I do, I have an eight-minute walk to work. We have our office base here in Soho. I live in the West Village. I just walk down Prince Street. And just like literally walking to work and just like being grateful that I am on a meteor going around the sun. And I happen to be born on like the one planet that's like an oasis. And I'm going to die in a blink of an eye. And we should probably have a lot of fun with what we're doing. We should try to make a really big impact on this meteor before we're gone. And other than that, not much else matters. And that's like sort of the attitude I walk into work every day. That to me is like my meditation, my mindfulness. I do other things we can chat about, but like in short, it's very much a whatever mindfulness for dummies approach. (laughs) I love that visual, just visualizing you walking down the street, thinking about all those things every single day. Yeah, no joke. Actually happens. I want to talk next about kind of standards of performance. And I think I was really curious because 
We spent a little bit of time in the last session talking about the bar that you have for people that you bring onto the team. And clearly, especially from your background, we talked about your experience at Goldman Sachs and at McKinsey and kind of the standards of performance there. So feel free to answer this question in regards to Titan, in regards to you. But I'm curious for you, what are the non-negotiable standards of performance of just how you want to show up, how you want your team to show up? It can be summarized very simply to will, skill, and cultural fit. Non-negotiable. Your will is just Olympian. You have a drive to just put a crater in whatever you're working on. A lot of people use the term killer, or like hustle, drive, et cetera. That truly is for us just probably the most important bar. And what that goes to is just the idea of why intercept versus slope, which I train a lot of our internal people on this subject internally, which is all else equal, we would prefer someone who had a much lower Y-intercept with a much higher slope. And because that's like you're making a bet on time with them, that with training and care, they are going to be next level at their job. I'll give a shout out to, I was interviewing for people with five to seven years of design expertise. We ended up bringing a kid named Kyle right out of college, beat out every other candidate hands down. If one were willing to look through the fact that he didn't have precisely the Y-intercept of experience, but his slope was incredible. The other things, skill, obviously you could measure for one specific role. And then cultural fit is just the idea that a job is almost like a matchmaking role. A lot of people are really great. They might not necessarily be great for us. And so how do we ensure that puzzle piece fits together based on our cultural values? Because there's no necessarily a global maximum. This is the perfect company in everything they do. It's just a variety of local maximums and different flavors. And so that's a very modest one where I'm so honest in final round interviews saying like, hey, here's who we are. Why don't you share a little bit who you are and let's see if we found a match. So like those three things consistently show up across like every person we bring on. Those are fantastic. And I love that framing of focusing on the intercept versus the slope. I've never heard it articulated that way. So you talked about, and I love your frankness and your directness, that you don't meditate, you don't journal every single day. But I'm sure there are things that you do every single day that help you show up as your best self. And it could be as simple as spending time in the morning, looking through your day, how you manage your time, how you capture your thoughts, anything there that's worth sharing that you've really worked on and refined it. I'm a voracious reader. I'm like insatiably curious in just in terms of like the information I'm consuming. If I had any anxiety, it would be information anxiety. <laughs> the more I know, the less I know. So I probably every week will have at least two to four hours of conversations with people exceptional in their field that are just like really wide ranging. And I have a note taking tool I use and I'm just writing, 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 writing the whole time during this convo. So I have this repository because my view is like best in classes offline, podcasts, convos, books, people, you name it. This like thing called like best in class operating does not exist. You have to piece it together yourself. So in a way, that's like a very like journalistic function that I play every week, like a reporter. I'm here to find out what it is. I love it. I recently recognized actually because of a journaling thing that my friend another CEO made me do. I'm a naturally joyous person. And the things that give me joy all have to do with movement and creativity. I bought a guitar, love playing guitar. I play a lot of soccer. I'm Puerto Rican, love dancing. These are the sorts of things that sort of just allow my brain or spirit to just go to a different place. And 
I can then look at Titan outside in. But yeah, like between these things, like that's a full week. It sounds like a very full week. If <laughs> Yeah, those would be the top two. I think it's just implicitly consuming information. Like I almost don't even need a calendar invite to consume it. It's already just like, I will consume hours of information this week. The one tactic I can share that's really been helpful is thinking about one's time, like green light, yellow light, and red light. I don't know if you've heard this tactic before. Every Sunday, I look at my calendar and there are only three things I need to be doing as a CEO. One, making sure capital is there. So that's like fundraising and so forth. The second is determining where capital should be deployed. That's strategy. The third is ensuring that capital gets deployed where it should be deployed. And that's execution. Any task that doesn't fall into one of those three buckets is not green. And when I look at my calendar, my calendar needs to be 90% green walking into any given week. It's so important or else one can just end up spending their time with all the other tasks. And one of the hardest things is obviously saying no. So oftentimes they say my role is a chief editing officer. Like the Latin root of decision is to cut. And so I spend a big cutting exercise every week editing my own calendar. I love that. That was an analogy Jack used a lot at Square. Instead of calling people product managers, everyone was an editor and he was really big on that concept of, and Ray Dalia is something similar. It's like sculpting and shaping and the importance of that, which I think is interesting. That is super fascinating. Yeah, I haven't heard of that exercise. I've definitely know a lot of people that do calendar audits, but I love that framing of green light, yellow light, red light, looking at your calendar and the bar of 90% green going into any week, which I imagine is hard. And you're probably looking at your calendar often and you're looking at all the things that you need to say no to. <laughs> so hard. We do another thing internally, which is called t-shirt ROI assessing. So ultimately the way we run Titan, there's a 10 page memo on our 10 year vision. We then have it. Okay. What's the three-year goal? And then from there, we create a one-year KPI called the BHAG, credit to Jim Collins, good to great. You should have a big, hairy, audacious goal, decompose that into a physics equation. And then from there, you have quarterly projects. And for the quarterly projects, how high ROI, so return, and then how much investment do you need on this project and assess them like a t-shirt? Like, is this an extra large impact, small effort? If so, that gets really high on the list. And so it's a creative approach, which I'm sure a lot of people have an ROI-based methodology. I've learned that the t-shirt moniker adds a little bit more fun to the strategy planning exercise. Super fun. Moving on to the next question. I'm curious for books or figures that have had a profound impact on you. I know that obviously you're always consuming information. Could be books. Maybe that's not always books. But any books or figures that have had a profound impact on you or just things that you find yourself recommending, giving to others, suggesting all the time? Coaches. And I've been studying for the last year the best coaches that the sporting world has ever produced. Reason being, in sports, the feedback cycles on whether you're great or good is just so fast. Usually once a year, you will be determined if you're good versus great. Usually it will take the lifetime of a company to figure that out, or maybe at least every few years. And so what I've then been studying is coaches who can walk into enterprises that were previously underperforming, who have just a track record of controllably taking an org to the next level. And so it goes back to that thing we were discussing earlier, which is the company OS is one of the most important things I need to build. And so hence, 
one of the best things to study are people who can systematically create best-in-class OSs. So you can get a lot of good nuggets from 11 Rings, Phil Jackson's book. A lot of it's long-winded, but there are a couple of nuggets in there. Bill Walsh, the score takes care of itself. That guy went to a 2-11 49ers organization and brought them five Super Bowls. Just reading through his tactical list of what he did, ranging from teaching the secretaries the exact script they should say where they pick up the phone, to like forcing his players to tuck in their shirt. I've studied everything I could on Pep Guardiola, who just definitionally has done exactly what I said, just goes into league and league. He's like literally destroyed the EPL and like given it a rebirth with his own philosophy. Obviously, Andy Grove's High Output Management consistently is probably the like number one book I gift. That's sort of like Warren Buffett. If you are at all in the business field and you have not read High Output Management with a pen in your hand, annotating it and writing notes, you need to immediately go do that this weekend. Those are fantastic examples. And I'll link to it in the show notes. It would take me a couple minutes to go and look it up. But on that vein, Nick Saban is someone I've studied a lot. And a couple of years ago, there was a really, really, really well done. It's probably a four-hour, three-part or four-part podcast episode where it was interviews with Nick Saban, interviews with his other coaches, interviews with players. It was like a true 360-degree story of what it's like. I love this. Yes. I'll send this to you after this interview and I'll add it to send the, me the show, show notes. notes too. Yes. No, I will. But no, it's incredible. And I think he, like a few people, he hasn't necessarily gone into an organization and turned it around, but he's been able to, I think on the flip side, there's that piece. I think another thing we're studying, I'm sure you'd probably agree, is people that have just been able to have a prolific track record where it's very clear that luck is out of the equation and there's a system and skill. (laughs) What does Tom Brady do? Yes, yes. (laughs) No real physical ability. What has he done? to acquire such expertise. You could say Belichick, but no, like the competitor in me understands a large portion of this is just wanting to provide the best impact one can have. And a lot of it is in your control versus out of your control. It's just, do you have the will to go understand and study it and learn and iterate? So I often find sports literature, despite it being poorly written, if you're willing to look past it, you can often get some exceptional anecdotes for how you run companies. I agree. I want to ask one more question around that, which is sports, it sounds like have had a big impact on your life from doing sports early on to studying coaches and teams and using that as just a well of inspiration. I'm curious from your experiences playing sports, being a part of teams growing up, what has that brought to your mind that has shaped how you show up at work, has shaped how you've built Titan? What is the OS pieces that are kind of encoded deep in your brain? From your experience there. Do you mean like tactics or do you mean like principles that like come to mind? Yeah, I think more principles. I think more just like what, and I think there's everything from a focus on hard work, a focus on being a team, but it just seems to me that there's different principles in sports that some make it to business, some don't. So I'm curious what kind of is stuck in your brain. Titan has a very low degree of burnout. Like we have never lost a single person yet. It's fantastic given that sprint that you talked about. <laughs> the exactly. crypto sprint. We're like a team that I truly mean it when I say it will take a decade to do X and then the next decade we'll do Y. We're buckled up for a long period of time. I think one of like the core principles behind that is you're trained to win and lose. And regardless, the thing that wakes you up in the morning every day is just the joy of being able to feel like you're in the right position on the field playing having a blast, doing it for someone else. In sports, it's an audience. For us, it's our clients. 
And regardless of if the scoreboard says win or lose, you go home, you get a good night's sleep and you come right back and you try your best the next day. And it's sort of like that degree of humility and compounding that we bring that's like ironically pretty similar to the investing sphere. Yeah, focus on process. It's like, that's what matters. You just need to show focus up and get on, it not outcome. We have a very high degree of rigor with what we do. So it's like, we're not complacent and we continually raise the bar on ourselves. And so they're like all this good stuff. When I observe some other entities and such, I just think like one could have more fun and more fulfillment, like as you go through it, if you just came to the realization that hopefully you find something you do for a long period of time, which unlocks your best piece of work. And so that's like our goal as a leadership team is we're sort of the coaches. We're in service to all the position players at Titan, including myself. How do we just craft the best environment for them to set records and be in the history books? I think it's fascinating. It definitely, to me, feels very colored by the world of sports in a great way. Very much so. So I'm excited to ask these two closing questions and to hear your answers. And the first is, if you can share a favorite failure. Favorite failure is that I fail all the time. It's great. And in particular, look, I think like failure is definitely glorified to a degree. The goal is that you don't just fail consistently. Eventually, you provide successful impact to others. But to the degree you're able to royally fail and then royally succeed, that's like way better than just royally succeeding. It's sort of like Agreed. the underdog story in a way. And so it almost like my best work comes out after I failed because now I'm underdog and like, boy, do I have something to prove when I'm the underdog. And I suppose tying it together, like when we were rejected by the venture community or when I've been rejected by every job. It's sort of like you're being told like, hey, this is great, but I think you can do better. And let's chat once you reach the next level. And so Titan's very much like a wartime company in that sense. And that's part of like that DNA, which is I sort of set that tone, which is like, look, we just did great, but I know we can do better. And it's not that the org is failing at all. Like the org is doing exceptionally well. I think just that motivation that comes with failure is just like, Adrenaline 2.0. I love that answer. And just to go a little bit deeper on that, I know that you guys got rejected more times when you were raising your first round of capital than Robinhood. Talk a little bit about the number of times, what that experience was like, and if there was an unlock at the end of that. <laughs> so I want to make, for any other entrepreneur listening on the show, let's be clear. If you get rejected 10 times in a row, you should go back to the drawing board, revise your pitch, or get more data before you keep doing it again. The failure I'm describing is a glorified failure. In hindsight, I should have totally pivoted process. There's that Einstein quote, or someone has that quote, like, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and you expect different results, you're an idiot or something. I literally did that until there were no more people to speak to, thank God, or else I'd have a thousand rejections in a row. But yeah, just like visualize your alarm goes off. You wake up in the morning, you put on your clothes, do your hair, whatever you need to do. And you're like, today I have a pitch. <laughs> and you go to the pitch. Today I got rejected. And then you do that again. And you do that again. And you do that again. And you do it again. I almost look back and I'm like, why did I not pivot process? And just, uh, <laughs> I guess I had stubbornness mixed with courage, mixed with like rebelliousness that I've since learned and gotten more maturity on. But like, nevertheless, it's a fun anecdote for Titan's beginnings. 
and one that I'm really grateful we had. We never will rest on our laurels. I know what it's like to taste death. I know what it's like to count every dollar. We had like 10 grand in the bank at one point in May 2018, debated shutting down the business. And just like that sort of like taste just doesn't leave you. It's just like always there. Yeah. And it sounds like that engages the underdog part of you that then sounds like maybe you've gotten a little bit more mature about that, but that then boots up this part that's like, I'm going to overcome this and figure this out. I asked in every final round interview still to this day, tell me about a time you're on a losing team. Like I ask it and not because I'm biased and like, yo, give me a list of your failures more because pressure creates diamonds. And that's, I know pressure times will come at Titan. I want to see, do you become worse or better? And like, what is that like? How do you bring others together? Because yeah, we are in a 13 year bull market or whatever, and everything's going exceptionally well in the technology industry. And my view is the boats that can be the highest when the tide rises, they're the ones who are going to win and they're going to take so much market share and we need to be one of those companies. So it's almost like we're prepared for a war, even though it's good times. I love it. And you need to have that attitude, I think, in the investment business. Okay. Last question. What is your definition of success? Honestly, I realize I could probably have some like cute fortune cookie type thing. Again, I'm just thinking you're getting the scoop. I'm a very raw, honest, and authentic person. To me, the things coming to mind, impacting others in whatever way one can. So that whether it's a big way or a small way, living fully, minimizing regret, bam, you've done a great job if you did that for a long period of time. Those are like, to me, the variables that matter. I'm curious what yours are. Yeah, it's a really great question. It's hilarious because I haven't really articulated my own, but I think for me, I think it really, the thing that's been resonating in my mind, and maybe it's cute, maybe it's not, but is that I think part of the definition of success, so there's a bunch of things obviously there. I think when your definition of success, you want it to be something that can include your family, your community, the people that you care about in life, because I focus like you do a lot on having an impact in work, but life is much bigger than that. But I think the biggest piece, honestly, and the thing that I've always returned back to that gives me just a ton of hope is this idea that you can always improve. And every single day is a chance to come back and get better at every part of your life. The areas that you're struggling. And I think really the way that I try to think about life is it's a pursuit to become my best self. And if I can achieve that, that will kind of unlock everything else. And the main mantra there is it's all about struggling well. Because I think if you're doing, I think any of us is maybe being a little bit disingenuous if we're saying that I think if you have big ambitions in life, there is going to be a lot of struggle. <laughs> struggle is going to show up daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. And I think there's two ways to think about it. And the two ways to think about it are struggle is something that means that you're off track. And I think the other is, no, struggle is pointing the way to the ways that you need to improve yourself. And I've always just found a lot of inspiration from that perspective. I love life. <laughs> For many different reasons, you can tell why I agree and really love that definition for sure. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you again so much for the time. I think what you're building at Titan is super different than what's out there in the business. Super compelling. I love the vision of this ultimately being the conduit for anyone that wants to manage other people's capital to be able to reach kind of an audience, I think, that is interested and excited and wants to use that to unlock. So thank you so much for your time, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thanks a ton for having me. This is a lot of fun. If you haven't already, listen to episode 38 to hear more from Joe Prococo of Titan. For links to everything we discussed, as well as our notes and takeaways from the episode, visit the show notes at outlieracademy.com slash 38. 
At Outlier Academy, you can find more conversations with incredible guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, Erlang Kagi, Paula Ferris, and Mark Sisson. You can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief, where every week on Friday, we share a few highlights from the latest episode with a few of our favorite books, quotes, articles, headlines, and moments from that week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.